Hey, y'all, this is Doc Washburn. A lot of people have been asking what happened to us. Unfortunately, producing video interviews is a lot more time-consuming than producing audio podcasts. We are actively looking for some folks to help us produce more interviews more quickly. We apologize in the meantime for the inconvenience. Now, here's the audio for the latest video interview we produced. Hi, welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. Our guest today is the Honorable Amul Thapar, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Before becoming an appeals court judge, he served as a federal prosecutor and trial judge. He rarely teaches at Notre Dame, the University of Virginia, and Vanderbilt. His new book is The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas, and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him. Now, there have been 116 justices on our Supreme Court. To those of us who revere our Constitution, Justice Thomas is, is admired as one of the greatest. Judge Thapar, thank you for coming on the Doc Washburn Show. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, sir. What uh, what motivated you to write a book about Justice Clarence Thomas? I think what his critics have said. His critics have said he's for the rich against the poor. He's for the strong over the weak. He's for the corporation over the consumer. And I think that's just a total misrepresentation of his judicial philosophy, which is for the Constitution and the written word of law. And he believes, unlike what his critics lay out, in the, he has faith in the American people. Excellent. So how has Justice Thomas inspired you, sir? I think first and foremost with his courage. I think his courage comes, in my mind, through his faith. And those have both inspired me and let me know that you can always do the right thing no matter what the critics think. So I noticed the title of the book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him. Why do you call Justice Thomas the the people's justice? I think there's multiple reasons why I call him the people's justice. First and foremost, as I said, he believes in the American people. He reflects their will by doing his best to faithfully interpret the document as it was understood at the time it was enacted and apply it to present day circumstances. And when he does that, if you'll remember, in exchange for a limited federal government, the people ceded certain powers to the federal government, but they retained for themselves their God given rights. And they enshrined some of those rights directly in the Bill of Rights because the Anti-Federalists were worried that a strong federal government would take away our rights. So what originalists believe is that we have to interpret that. And when we faithfully interpret those words, it most often results in protecting people, including the little guy, including the consumer, including everyday Americans. And that's why... Justice Thomas is an originalist because he took an oath to this Constitution, and that means the words and concepts in the document itself. You know, I see this um, this argument between liberals and constitutionalists on social media often. Liberals will say, well, the Second Amendment, you know, back then, I mean, you, it covered muskets. So, yeah, if you, if you want a musket, that, that's fine, but not, not this AR-15 stuff. Et cetera, et cetera. And I often see constitutionalists come back and say, oh, well, if that's the case, I guess the First Amendment wouldn't cover the Internet, radio, TV, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where they get flummoxed. In other words, 
the, the concepts founders recognize our God-given the Bill of Rights uh, were designed to be permanent, not just to apply to whatever technology was available at the time, right? Yeah, that's the difference between original meaning and original application. And I don't want to get too technical, but our job is to interpret the words and concepts and apply them to present day circumstances. It's not to look at the original application. The application can be indicative of what the meaning is, but the ultimate job is to interpret the meaning. And if I can, just for example, this book covers a lot of subjects, obviously. And the idea behind the book was to take originalism to everyday Americans and make them understand what originalism is. The difference between the critics and the book is the critics will tell you what to think. In the introduction and conclusion, I lay out what I believe. I don't hold back. I, I let you know I'm an originalist. I let you know I believe in Justice Thomas, an originalist, and I believe that Justice Thomas cares passionately about the American people. And it shows in his decisions. But in the 12 chapters in between, as you saw, I tell the stories of the cases. And then I use, I summarize and use Justice Thomas's own words. So you can judge for yourself. Does he protect the little guy? Is he in favor of corporations against the consumer? And you can read these chapters and see for yourself and form your own conclusion. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's a wonderful thing that Justice Thomas believes in originalism. Uh, we wish that more uh, justices were were consistent on that um, because there have been some really terrible Supreme Court decisions in the 234-year history of the Supreme Court where justices, even in the 1800s, would just throw it out the window because they wanted the result that they wanted. Um, Justice Thomas' belief in staying true to the intent of the founders who drafted our Constitution has often found him in the minority on some Supreme Court decisions. Now, to my way of thinking, that's easy to understand when liberals were in the majority on the court. Not so easy to understand when supposedly constitutionalists have been in the majority, uh, have been in the majority the last few years. Could you please explain the seeming discrepancy? Yeah, I mean, I genuinely think the justices are doing their job and trying their best to get it right. I just think they have divergent philosophies as they approach the document. And that results in the diversity of viewpoint you see at the Supreme Court and at all courts, for that matter, at our court as well. But I do think all nine of them believe they're doing their best to get the law right. I think Justice Thomas has an originalism um, that I admire And it's a type of originalism called original public meaning originalism, as you pointed out, that tries to faithfully interpret the Constitution according to the original meaning. Right. So Justice Thomas, of course, has been on the court for a long time now. Um, There have been many decisions. Uh, Some he was in the majority. Some he was uh, writing a dissent. Uh, What made you select the 12 stories in your book, and and do you have a particular favorite? 
<laughs> so uh, the reason I picked the 12 is I wanted to give a good cross section. How I came up with the 12 is maybe important for everyone to understand, which is what I did is I looked where he was the author and not writing for a plurality or majority. Why? When you write for a majority, you're building a coalition. So sometimes you have to give in on certain things to get to five or to get to a plurality. Whereas when he's writing for himself, it represents his pure views, his pure and unvarnished views. And so it lets the reader see what does Justice Thomas really think? How does his originalism operate? And as, as I say, is his America the America we want to live in? And all the readers can decide that. As to whether I have a favorite, it's like asking me to pick my favorite kid after you work on a book, as I'm sure you appreciate. Uh, They're they're all your favorites. I'm happy to talk about any or all of them. I think they're fascinating stories. I think your your listeners and viewers will find them to be fascinating when you go through them. And maybe I could start with a story uh, in the introduction just to explain why I included it and then talk about some of the stories and the cases, and we can get into them a little bit, get into the meat of what Justice Thomas is all about. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good, uh, good idea. We're speaking with Judge Amol Thapar, author of the new book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas, and the constitutional stories that define him. Uh, your book reminds us the founders set up American law to protect the citizens from government and to ensure Law-abiding citizens can protect themselves from predatory ones, which brings us to Chapter 1, the Kelo decision. Please tell my viewers about that one. Yeah, so Suzette Suzette Kelo was this remarkable woman. She had, you know, she was down a rough time. She had a falling out with her husband. She had to find a house. She wanted a house with a view of the water, but she was a paramedic. And she found a house in a blue-collar town, a run-down house that she thought was perfect. She knew she needed to put a lot of work into it, so she took correspondence courses to get a second job as a nurse. And then, through blood, sweat, and tears, she turned what was a rundown house that the real estate agent was shocked she wanted into the perfect home for herself. It was beautiful. Inside and out, she loved it so much, she painted it her favorite color, Odessa pink. And on it, she put the Kilo house because she was so proud of it. And next door to her were the dairies. And the dairies had lived in this blue-collar town for a 100 years, and their family had. And every time one of their kids got married, they made a down payment on a house in the neighborhood. They loved the neighborhood so much. It was blue-collar America. It was the heartland here in New London, Connecticut. Well, Suzette and her neighbors found out something was going on. And... What they found out is the Pfizer Corporation, maybe your listeners and viewers have heard of that, was moving in down the street. And the city of New London had convinced them to move in. They wanted a new place to develop what they believed was going to be a wonder drug, Viagra. But they not only wanted to build their facility, they wanted to put in an upscale mall with restaurants and stores and an upscale apartment building with a view of the water. To do so, they needed to take Suzette's neighborhood. Well, in the Fifth Amendment, when we gave government limited powers, we gave them the power of eminent domain. 
but they could only take property for a public use. So as Justice Thomas has explained, and with just compensation, as Justice Thomas has explained, public use was traditionally thought of taking a little bit of your front yard to put a sidewalk in so the public could use it, or taking a little bit of your yards to widen the road so the public could use it. What happened is there was a case in the 1950s in the District of Columbia where the city wanted to get rid of some blighted property and other property and put in a mall and apartment buildings and other things. And that case, the residents wanted to stay. They, because when you displace poor and lower class residents and give them just compensation, right? They never believe it's just. This is their house. Right. And a lot of people that are in that income bracket, it's really hard 30 years later to buy a house in an equivalent neighborhood because property appreciates. So the Supreme Court in that case ruled that cities could take property for a public purpose. Notice the change in words. The Constitution says public use. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court in Berman said public purpose. So what happens? This case, Suzette Kilo and her neighbors do not give in. They get the Institute for Justice, a Washington firm that has made their name an eminent domain to come represent them. And this case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And there's a Twitter site for the book. It's called The People's Justice. And the reason and you can put it in Twitter and find it. I don't know the technicalities, but just put the people's justice in the search bar. The reason it came up is we wanted to post some of these audio clips because you're not going to believe it when I tell you. Justice Scalia asked the lawyer for the city, if you take from the rich and give to the poor, or take from the poor and give to the rich for tax purposes, so you get higher taxes, is that a public purpose for which you can take eminent domain? The lawyer says yes. Wow. That's what Justice Scalia thought, so he asked again. Wait, wait, let me get this straight. So you can take from A? And give to B just to get more tax dollars? Again, Wes Horton, the city's lawyer, says yes. Well, judgment day came, and Suzette Kilo lost. Mm. And Justice O'Connor wrote the principal dissent, joined by Justice Rehnquist, Justice Scalia, and Justice Thomas. But then, Justice Thomas wrote alone. And Justice Thomas was the only justice that said we should go back to the original meaning. Now, why didn't Justice Scalia, who's an originalist, join it? The simple reason was the Institute for Justice did not think they could get to five votes to go back to the original meaning. So they asked, they argued that a corporation's purpose is not a public purpose. And this was truly a corporate purpose. Justice Thomas took up the, there were 150 amicus briefs. I combed the briefs. The NAACP asked the court to go back to the original meaning. That's right, Doc. You heard that right. The NAACP asked the court to go back to the original meaning. Wow. And only Justice Thomas took up that invitation. Now, this, I want to remind you, as I point out in the introduction, and I put endnotes in so everyone can check. The Justice Thomas has been called a traitor to his race. He's been called an Uncle Tom. Just recently, he's been called an Uncle Tom. Yet, he's the only justice that pointed out in Berman, 97% of the residents that were displaced were black. He pointed out 
that when eminent domain has been misused in our history, it's been misused to prey on poor and middle class. And here it was used to displace a blue collar neighborhood. Now I want your listeners to read the book because there's so many more details, but I'm going to give away the punchline of chapter one. This is just for you. The punchline is Pfizer came in and eight years later they left after leveling this neighborhood, after the city of new London had leveled this neighborhood. And what, I did is I went to New London, Connecticut. And in the book is a picture of where Suzette Kilo and the Dairy's house once stood. And it's a barren field. Wow. Wow. Let the record reflect that uh, Judge Thapar um, has gone back in in history uh, and given us evidence that Pfizer has been in the business of leveling folks Way before COVID. Also, if it pleases the court, let the record reflect. Judge Thapar has actually used the correct pronunciation of the word amicus. And as a public service, we appreciate that because we're used to about 50-50. When, when you hear the word used, half of the people say amicus, half the people say amicus. Uh, people like me who have never been to law school have always wondered. But now we know. And, and, and we appreciate that. Um, uh, Judge Thapar, in reading your chapter about the Ohio school choice decision, I find it instructive that justices can look at the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, even the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, for that matter, and see those texts having completely contradictory meanings. Can you please help us understand this anomaly? Yeah, so I think chapter two, which is about the Zellman case, educational vouchers, is pretty instructive. And it's fascinating because it relates even to today. And I'll let, leave for your readers the stories included in the case, which are incredible. Mm-hmm. Other than I'm going to mention one, which is everyone should admire the bipartisan nature in which everyone wanted to help these kids out. And I want to give them one quote that I'm not going to reproduce it exactly off memory, but it's in the book and they can read it. The ranking Democrat, Patrick Sweeney, Bill Batchelder, the the leading Republican, was known as the godfather of vouchers. He put together this voucher plan for the Cleveland school students from low-income neighborhoods because their schools were in terrible disrepair. And the book documents all that. You can read about how horrific it was to the point where the kids didn't have soap or toilet paper in their bathrooms. Wow between 14 and 25 buildings were condemned. And so they wanted to give these kids a chance. And what they did is they went around and enlisted a bunch of schools, including they met with Bishop Pilla, who is the Catholic Bishop, the leader of the archdiocese there in Cleveland. And he agreed to take them in if they wanted to use the vouchers to come to public schools. The way Ohio set it up is they let the parents decide kind of like the GI bill, right? You get, you get a voucher, You can go to another public school. You can go to a Catholic school. You can stay where you're at. Completely up to you. The support for the program by the Cleveland parents was overwhelming. In fact, it's so important that I put it as the backdrop. Uh, I asked them to put it as the backdrop on the Twitter page. So you can go there and see it. There's probably a couple tweets about it as well in there. And you can see the picture of the Cleveland parents at the Supreme Court fighting for their 
kids to have a choice, to have a chance at success. This case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and you'll be happy to know that the Cleveland parents won. The teachers union wanted to stop them from fleeing the public schools, and so they sued, and the parents won. And the program is in place today. But there was a very, as you pointed out at the beginning, divergent view of what the Establishment Clause meant. The union's argument was, and it's documented in the book, if one penny of public money went to a religious school, it was a violation of the Establishment Clause. The court's view was much different, which is this has nothing to do with the Establishment Clause the majority said that the parents were exercising choice. They were getting a voucher and they could use the money as they saw fit. They could go to public school. They could go to magnet school. They could go to community school or they could go to religious or they could go to a private school. That's not, not religious at all. And justice Thomas, and I think this might be what you're referring to pointed out how perverse it would be if we used the Establishment Clause, to prevent kids from getting a better education wherever they saw fit. Yeah, and for people who are racking their brains going, I know I've heard the Establishment Clause before. I mean, the the First Amendment to the United States Constitution says that uh, Congress shall make no law establishing a religion. That's the part that liberals tend to talk about most often and they ignore the rest of it or, you know, forbidding the free exercise thereof. And they, they, they just don't want to deal with that part of the Establishment Clause. Um, it, it, have you found that to be the, the case with uh, uh, liberals on the court? Uh, that's hard to say. I think, I think from the outside, especially with our court, so I'm on the Sixth Circuit, People look in, and I think we're all trying to get it right. We just approach it differently. Um, We're applying precedent. I think Justice Thomas points out that as originally understood, the Establishment Clause didn't even apply to the states. And as you pointed out, it says Congress shall make no law, and I discuss it in this chapter. Yeah. Um, But I can say on my court, everyone's just trying to get it right and faithfully apply the precedent as it exists. I know in the academies they argue the thing you're talking about, but I don't think, I think judges are trying to understand the precedent, the documents, and make sure we get it right. We'll be right back with the Honorable Judge Amul Thapar, author of the new book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas, and the constitutional stories that define him in just a few. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online. If you have any questions, one of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process 
is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for 5 or 6 weeks every spring all my life and migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, TurnMyPowerOn.com. Click on the tab that says Find a Doctor Near You, and I sure hope you can. Mike Lindell says because of your amazing support for MyPillow 2.0, he's expanded MyPillow's USA manufacturing and jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bed sheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King-size percale bed sheets, only $39 a set. Queen-size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29, and twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all-season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all-season Moccasin Slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slippers Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. And now our conversation with Judge Amulfa Parr continues. Okay, now your book quotes Justice Thomas from a 1995 case, Missouri versus Jenkins. Uh, he said, it never ceases to amaze me that the courts are so willing to assume that anything that is predominantly black must be inferior. Uh, hasn't Justice Thomas been pushing back against racism ever since the, the high-tech lynching, his description of the 1991 confirmation hearings chaired by Joe Biden? Yeah, I think when you looked at chapters two and three together, so chapter two is about the vouchers that we just talked about where it was mainly inner city kids that the vouchers were helping. And Justice Thomas pointed out that the promise of Brown, in spite of the promise of Brown v. Board of Education, we had failed most of these kids by not giving them educational opportunity. And then chapter three is about affirmative action, and it's the University of Michigan case where the law school 
where Barbara Grutter was trying to get into law school. And what you're referring to is a quote from a case known as Missouri v. Jenkins. And just to explain what happened, Justice Thomas in his Grutter dissent talked about historically black colleges and the importance they serve in society. And I pointed out there was a case from Alabama about Alabama State University, a a great historically black college, where a court ordered the school be diversified. And the way they were going to diversify it is they were going to take scholarships from blacks one way and give it to whites. And the court, in dealing with that, knew it had to deal with Justice Thomas's quote in Missouri v. Jenkins. And this program got coined by the plaintiff. So the plaintiff was a black student who was a graduate student who had a scholarship that was revoked from him. And he sued. And what the plaintiffs claimed is they had whites-only scholarships. And, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You can go read that case. The program got upheld, and they had to deal, they knew they had to deal with the critique Justice Thomas had leveled that you quoted, that why are we assuming this when historically black colleges have such a great historical reputation and have produced many of the leading lights of our country? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, a quote, it might have been from Justice Thomas, might have been from uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell, the the soft bigotry of low expectations. Justice Thomas uses that in Chapter 3 when he's talking about the Affirmative Action Program. Yeah. And I would encourage your listeners and viewers to get the book and read Chapters 2 and 3 if they want to understand Justice Thomas's view on affirmative action. It goes hand in hand, I would remind you, with vouchers. In the Zellman case, as I know in the third chapter, the Grutter chapter, Justice Thomas, in his mind, saw one constitutional way to accomplish diversity in colleges, which was give kids a better K through 12 education. Because Justice Thomas is in the mold of Frederick Douglass, who he quotes often in those cases, and Thomas Sowell. Those are people he studied. Those are the people. And what he thinks is Give blacks an equal opportunity. It's why chapter two is called Education Means Emancipation, to quote Frederick Douglass, which Justice Thomas does in chapter two. And then in chapter three, he quotes Frederick Douglass again, do nothing with us. That is, give us an equal opportunity and let us succeed on our own because we can do it. In other words, when they say he's a traitor to his race, no, he's not. He believes firmly that if blacks are given an equal opportunity, they can accomplish anything they need to. And the, there's a constitutional way to get diversity in colleges, and that is give kids a voucher, give them, take them out of failing schools, give them a chance in K through 12 to get educated in a safe school environment, and then let them fail or succeed on their own. And it will occur naturally without any discrimination, which he believes is forbidden by the 14th Amendment of the Constitution and that's laid out in Chapter 3. Uh, we're speaking with Judge Amol Thapar, author of the new book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas, and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him, which you can see over his shoulder here in the uh, uh, on the video screen. Now, if you can't see it, that means you're listening to the, the audio 
uh, of this and not watching the video. And what's wrong with you? I mean, why aren't you going on YouTube or Rumble and watching the video? Probably because they got on and looked at my face, Doc, and said, oh, no, we'll just listen. Uh, no, I'm the guy with a face for radio. Don't, don't get me started on that. So in this Chapter 3 uh, the about the affirmative action lawsuit against University of Michigan Law School, we've been discussing here, uh, Justice Thomas, writing in dissent uh, to the majority, said they are allowing the school to continue violating the Constitution for another 25 years. What... It's, you know, sometimes in, in dissents, whether it's, it's Justice Thomas or a conservative or maybe a liberal and a dissent to, to a conservative, uh, constitutionalist, um, uh, decision, sometimes dissents can be rather biting. And obviously this one was, what was he talking about here? Yeah. Justice O'Connor writing for the majority basically said affirmative action is fine now. We need it now, but we won't in 25 years. And Justice Thomas pointed out the Constitution doesn't morph over 25 years. And what is unconstitutional in 25 years has to be unconstitutional now. Yeah. And so he was pushing back on the idea that something in 2003 could be unconstitutional but 25 years later in 2028, or I guess she was saying at the time of the program, so it would probably be 2025. Uh, I haven't calculated it precisely, but the point being is it can't be constitutional now and unconstitutional 25 years from now. Yeah, uh, very, very good point. And I'm sure Justice O'Connor wasn't crazy about the dissent, but Somehow or another, they, they get along with each other. So has Justice Thomas's identity as a black conservative made uh, a difference in your life? Yes. I mean, I think watching what he goes through and he sticks to what he believes his oath is, right? He believes, as I said at the beginning, his oath is to this Constitution. He takes that oath very seriously. He is a man of the people. Whether you see him out anywhere, he cares passionately about people. I document that in the book. And even in the cases in front of him, he cares passionately about the people, but he always has the courage to do what's right. And I talk about that in the introduction, and it shows that we should all have the courage to always do what's right. Absolutely. So, uh, Justice Thomas, uh, you mentioned his faith earlier in this interview. How has his faith and upbringing uh, shaped him in his role as a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, I mean, I think he understands when you put your hand on the Bible and take an oath to this Constitution that you can't break that because his faith is very serious. I also think by putting God at the center of his life, he doesn't worry about what others think of him. He just does what he believes he has to do to honor his oath. And so it makes it, if you care about what, for example, the Twitter mob thinks of you, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna have problems as a judge. You're not gonna be consistent with your oath. If you care about what God and your family think, you'll be all right. And that's where Justice Thomas is. Am I honoring the oath I took? He views that as very important. For him, that oath is to this constitution, as I mentioned. Absolutely. Now, one of the chapters of your book, Causation or Correlation, Brown uh, versus Entertainment Merchants Association, there was a uh, very controversial 
video game called Doom, and there was a tie-in apparently with the uh, uh, the Columbine shooting. What? How? How did that uh, verdict come down? Yeah. So what happened is the state of California wanted to aid parents in making sure their children weren't buying and playing video games without their knowledge. And so they created what was pretty well known at the time. We have them in all sorts of things, parental consent laws. You can't get married without your parents' consent. You can't enlist in the army without your parents' consent. In some states, you can't get a tattoo without your parents' consent. And so they added to that, you can't buy a violent video game if you're under 18 without your parents' consent. What had happened, and the chapter documents it, is the Columbine shooting where in the notes, and you can go find them on the Internet, I read them, they're talking about that this is going to be just like Doom when they're psyching themselves up to go play, to go do the Columbine shooting, and they're talking back and forth. And so California passes this law, and the Video Game Association challenges it in court. And the chapter documents the legal struggles, but it also shows that a coalition of states from as wide as Texas to California, Florida, Texas, California, they all come together. And they say, we need these types of laws. These are not unconstitutional. goes all the way to the Supreme Court. California relied upon a Supreme Court case that talked about how you can have parental consent before children can buy pornography and tried to analogize it to that. The court didn't buy it. So the video game makers have a right to free speech in an opinion written by Justice Scalia. Justice Breyer dissented and said and took a pragmatic approach and attached an appendix showing the harm that video games were having, violent video games were having on children. Justice Thomas also dissented. His dissent was different in kind. What he looked at is parental rights at the founding. So Justice Thomas believes the 14th Amendment includes the privileges or immunities of citizenship. And one of those privileges or immunities that was pretty well established at the founding was parents got to raise their kids as they saw fit. State couldn't tell you what to do with your kids. They couldn't tell you how. Even education, the chapter documents, parents were very involved in their kids' education and had primary responsibility. And to Justice Thomas, there was no constitutional right to speak to a minor. In other words, you couldn't speak to my minor child without my consent. And so... I could withhold that consent in the same way. And he documented it with exhaustive history and research. And that's included in the chapter. You know, one of the stereotypes, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the stereotypes about Justice Thomas was that he and Scalia were just in lockstep. And it was almost like a stereotype. Not maybe the truth, but the stereotype was that if Scalia came down on this side, you're going to see Clarence Thomas right there with him. Uh, but I, of course, agree with Justice Thomas in his dissent. And uh, who am I? I'm no lawyer. But but he's making sense here. This is not about free speech rights. This is about d- does some kind of entity, some kind of corporation have the right to do an end run around parents who are trying to protect uh, their children, and you know, frankly, it's 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 disappointing that Scalia came down. I believe 
uh, on the wrong side here. Uh, but it does remind me of something I think both Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia said, which is if you're looking at the result you want as opposed to what the Constitution says, you, you're looking for trouble. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? Because it, it is unusual that Scalia and Thomas would come down to different sides uh, of a ruling, but it wasn't unprecedented. It, it did happen, and here's a perfect example. Yeah, and there's a few chapters in this book where they come down on opposite sides. One thing Justice Scalia said that's always stuck with me is if you re- if in every case you reach the result you want, you're not being a judge. Right. You're being a politician. Right. And so it was very, very important for him that you follow the law as you believed it was meant to be. And Justice Scalia took that same oath and he took it just as seriously. And they both were serious originalists, Scalia and Thomas. And but they disagreed sometimes because they would look at the information they'd laid. The, the beauty of originalism, Doc, is you lay your work out and then you the, the reader can judge. Yeah. Justice Thomas laid out his work. Justice Scalia explained his perspective. It's all there. And so I think that's really, really important. But the main takeaway that we all should remember is that any judge that likes all their results, if you meet a judge and you say, do you like the result you reached in every case? The answer better be, of course not. That's not what the law dictates. You don't get to play God. You're just a judge. Exactly. So uh, sometimes there have been cases that have gone all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in in which uh, one of the parties, well, uh, usually the uh, the plaintiff uh, tends to use an anonymous name. We're all familiar with uh, Roe v. Wade, but sometimes the name is is uh, Roe. Sometimes the name is Doe. Uh, there's a chapter in your book, Standing Alone, Doe versus United States. Perhaps you could tell us about that one. Yeah, Jane Doe was an as you said, an anonymous person. She filed suit anonymously against West Point Academy. She was a star student there, but she got raped. And tragically, she alleged she got raped. And she wanted to prove that West Point was negligent and that that was why she got raped. But there was, and there's something, the king used to be sovereign, right? Which means you couldn't sue the king. The king could do no wrong. Well, when the the federal government started to get more involved in the American people's lives, the American people pushed back and they said, if you're going to get more involved in our lives, then we want to be able to sue you when you're negligent, when you cause us harm. And so, so the federal tort claims act was passed, which allowed people to sue. And she brought a suit under the federal tort claims act, but there was an exception, which is that the military, and it makes sense if a general ordered a soldier to do something in the line of duty, Incident to the service is what they'd say. You couldn't sue if you got hurt doing it, right? That makes sense. So, but this exception has grown and grown and grown. And it got to the Supreme Court because everyone threw out her suit. And when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court decided not to take the case. But one person voted to take the case because he thought she should be entitled to her day in court to try and prove that A, she was raped, and B, that West Point was negligent and not doing anything about it. 
And the chapter details the story, the story of West Point, the story of how this all came about. And Justice Thomas dissents. And he says they should have taken the case. And he says that women would be surprised to find out, his last line, women would be surprised to find out that rape is incident to their military service. Wow. Again, that's such a, 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 a biting dissent. Um, it's, um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw Hugh Hewitt's review, but Hugh said he had to put the book down and go find the case because he couldn't believe it. Yeah. It, it's, it's so disappointing that justice Thomas is using logic. He's using linear reasoning. And yet eight other justices said, no, nah, that, that's fine. We, we, we don't need to deal with that. Um, because my understanding of the way these things work is that um, the justices, before they release some sort of decision, get to see what each other are writing. And, and sometimes a justice is able to persuade other justices to come over to his or her side, right? Yeah, I mean, in this situation, it's a little different because they were voting for certiorari. So he was the only one who wanted to even take the case and hear argument. And so when they vote, he says, let's not issue our decision because I want to issue a dissent. So one person votes to take it, eight vote against, if you imagine, or however it was. He couldn't get four votes. And so it might have been that two others voted but didn't speak up, but he spoke up, and they didn't join him for whatever reason, but we don't know. All we know is that he wanted to take the case and felt so strongly that he did the highly unusual thing of writing a dissent from not taking the case. And certiorari for our viewers is the the process of saying, okay, we're going to take the case. Exactly. Which is, I think he said, there's something like an uh, average of seven or 8,000 cases that are presented every year and a very small minority. Uh, does the Supreme Court even have time to, uh, to think about taking, right? Right. They take about 80 a year uh, out of 8,000. So about, about 1%. Yeah. And yeah, because yeah, 800 would be 10%, 80 would be 1%. I, I, I think... Most folks don't have any idea that if a case gets to the Supreme Court, that's kind of a big deal. Um, yes. Because 99% of the cases don't get there. More of our conversation with Judge Amul Thapar is coming right up. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. 
Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the general Mike Flynn silver coin and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. If you want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier, Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, is a perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. And switching to Patriot Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Yeah, let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping factory direct at a family-owned made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef, raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone. This beef is known as never ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members, and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Buyonlyusa at proton.me. And now the conclusion of our conversation with Judge Amul Thapar. Now, I, I want to go back to this uh, this Doe case uh, about... Um, you know, her, her lawsuit against West Point, and you mentioned the Federal Tort Claims Act. Um, does the concept of sovereign immunity um, play into this at all? Because we all know it's very difficult to sue City Hall, as it were. It's very difficult to sue uh, government in employees because they tend to be doing things under the color of of law, and you know, you mentioned Justice Thomas saying, "Yeah, I don't think that should probably cover rape, though." So, is sovereign immunity part of where the the court went with this? You think? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, remember, the Federal Federal Tort Claims Act is a minor, or not minor, it's a big, but it's an exception to sovereign immunity. So the presumption is always the sovereign gets immune, immunity. Then there's, so the way to explain it is, the presumption is sovereign immunity. The Federal Tort Claims Act is an exception. Then there's exceptions to the Federal Tort Claims Act, which gets the government back into sovereign immunity. Yeah. And exceptions that's to the exception. Right, exactly. So, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, faith. We're, we're talking about how wonderful faith is and that Justice Thomas is a man of faith. And yet, I think we've all had the um, experience of running into to people of faith who say, well, I don't want to I don't want to get into politics. I just want to preach the gospel. Um, why should people of faith care about the Constitution? Why should they know? Uh, what's in the Bill of Rights? Why should they know uh, about the articles of the of the Constitution? You know, I think it's I think it's important that all people, including people of faith, know about these things. I think the education, hopefully, that this book provides is history, civics, and the Constitution, and shows firsthand how important understanding the Constitution is. What this book does, I think, is it arms the reader with a knowledge of the Constitution, of originalism, and of why it's important to everyday Americans. And it gives you the ability, if you read the book, I ask one thing. You give it to a friend who's a doubter because you can change minds one person at a time. You give it to a friend who's a doubter, you ask them to read it, and then you ask them to discuss it with you. Information is power. Having this information will allow your listeners and viewers to refute what the critics say about Justice Thomas. He is a man, as you pointed out, of deep faith. He is a man that at every turn tries to do the right thing, tries to honor us. And he deserves the protection from those of us that know that that's what he's doing. And so when you read this book, I think, as you have, Doc, I think when your listeners and viewers read it, they will see firsthand that justice, the caricature of Justice Thomas is wrong. It's unfair. And they can correct it by having their friends who are doubters read it and discuss it with them. Yeah, I mean, there have been caricatures of Justice Thomas, even in editorial cartoons and newspapers for for many years, some of which you know, have looked racist to me. Um, but I guess if you're a liberal doing a, a racist caricature of a black conservative, then, then that's okay. People can get away with that. If it's the other way around, I mean, you know, if you're a conservative and you do a racist caricature of somebody like Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton, Lord help you. You know, you're going to get canceled in a moment. And, you know, for those of us who believe all racism is bad, it would be nice if it were, you know, applied evenly. Um, one last question. Why, uh, why is religious liberty so important to our nation? And how can ordinary Americans protect our religious liberty in our communities? Yeah, I mean, I think an important decision out of the Supreme Court for your listeners to read, it's not in the book because Justice Thomas didn't write in it, and as I told you how I selected the cases, is some of the recent cases like Fulton, 
Um, Fulton's a case about the city of Philadelphia and, and an orphanage, uh, there, a Catholic orphanage that didn't want, that wanted the liberty to place their kids with families of similar faith and things like that. Yeah. I think that's one. I think the one about the coach, it's called Kennedy, the coach praying with his team. Um, look, most people will say liberal and conservative alike. The first amendment is the first for a reason. It's one of the most important amendments. It includes our rights of conscience and meaning the right of free exercise of religion um, the right prohibiting the federal government from establishing a federal church and the rights of free speech. So you can talk about it. And I think it's really important that people understand those rights and be able to talk intelligently about them. And without the knowledge, if you don't have the knowledge, I don't see you can practice your faith, but you can't protect it from being trampled. And you need to have that knowledge. Amen. The book is The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas, and the constitutional stories uh, that define him. Uh, the author is Judge Amul Thapar. I appreciate so much you coming on the Doc Washburn Show. It's an honor uh, to be able to do this interview. Is Are there any um, parting thoughts you want to leave with uh, with my viewers? The last thing I'd say is I have great admiration for your viewers and listeners. I hope they will. The book's out this week, just came out the week we're filming this. And I hope they'll take a look. Let me know what they think. They can leave reviews on Amazon. They can tell you and you can communicate with me. But either way, I'd love to know what they think about the book and what else I can do to in the next book. If that's something they'd be interested in after reading this, I hope I made it accessible and easy to understand and enjoyable to read. Excellent. And of course it's available at fine bookstores everywhere or wherever you order books online. Uh, Judge the bar. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Uh, God bless you. We, we wish you much success with this book. Thank you very much for having me. It's time for our tweet of the day brought to you by Red River Auto, the big old car dealership in the middle of the country that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Tweet of the day. Today's tweet of the day is a two-parter. First, Andy Nyo reports on the recent riots in Paris. Overnight, as race riots descended into the fifth day in France, the family home of the mayor of a Paris suburb was attacked. Rioters set a car on fire and rammed it into his home, trying to burn it down. His wife and young children were sleeping inside. The rioters then attacked her and the children as they attempted to flee, causing her to have a broken leg. Over 700 riot suspects were arrested last night. The rioters are continuing to loot and set fire to buildings in the Paris, France area as revenge for the police shooting death of a French Algerian youth. Okay, that's part one of our tweet of the day. It's followed by part two from the great Colonel Kurt Schlichter, who said, tell me more about how I should give up my guns so the government can protect me. Thank you, Colonel. And thank you, Mitch Ward and Red River Auto, for sponsoring today's Tweet of the Day. Tweet of the Day. 
You've been watching episode 396 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us, contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempio X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. And that's the way it was. Friday, June 23rd, 2023.